Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Would you join me in the book of Acts? I want to start in the sixth chapter. There's the last part of the sixth chapter that introduces us to Stephen. And then the seventh chapter is entirely taken up with Stephen giving, let me call it a sermon, a speech, uh, a response, whatever you want to call it, is, is the longest speech in the book of Acts. So let's go back to the sixth chapter to set up what that speech is about. The 12 had to solve a problem in the church, distribution of food. And they told the congregation, the other disciples, seek out seven men full of the Holy Ghost, known to be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, and appoint them to oversee this so that the widows are not overlooked. And when they chose the seven men, the first one named is Stephen, and the second one named is Philip. And we don't hear a lot about the rest of these and what happened to them. It's not that nothing became of them, but the Bible is not exhaustive in its history. But the first two we hear more about in the book of Acts. We'll hear about Philip later. Right now we pick out the very first man listed was Stephen. And it just so happened that Stephen, now being selected to what we would commonly call a, a position of a deacon to serve, to take care of practical needs in this Christian community. It just so happened that Stephen really shined. He was full of wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit as demonstrated by this narrative about Stephen. And it says, as I read I'm going to kind of skip read through the, seventh, the rest of the sixth chapter. Stephen, full of grace and power, wrought great wonders and signs among the people. But he caused a big stink doing this. They didn't like his ministry. And they hauled him before the uh, Sanhedrin and made accusations against him. Because he was so powerful in his presentation, he was so powerful in his persuasion, in his speech, in his ministry, that it says uh, they were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. That's powerful preaching. And the, these people who prided themselves in being so skilled in the word couldn't even hold a candlestick to Stephen. This man was on fire, and he was just a deacon. Oh, was he stepping up to the task. So they, they got some gather, together some men to make false accusations against Stephen. And they said, we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they got all the people stirred up over the ministry of Stephen. Saying uh, he was, uh, we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple. And changed the customs which Moses delivered unto us. And so here he is before the council. And we go to the seventh chapter. That's a long chapter. And if you would read this. It just seems like Stephen is rambling. He goes back and picks up some history of Israel. And as he goes from one story to another. It's a little bit difficult to make sense out of what Stephen's message really is and then at the very end of meandering through the history of Israel he just suddenly blurts out and God sent Jesus and, and you crucified him and it's just like what did all this other speech have to do with this I'm going to organize this for you today outline it 
So it makes sense what the message was that Stephen was trying to preach to these people and we're, we're convinced that they, they understood what he was saying. We don't understand it so much, but they being Jews and knowing the implications of the specific uh, uh, things that he cited in Scripture, they were getting the message all right. Now, first, let, let me just brief you about Stephen. Uh, being chosen as a deacon, being recognized as being full of faith, being obviously recognized as full of the Holy Spirit. And it adds here, he was full of grace because whenever they had brought these charges against him, uh, his face was like that of an angel. And there's something very specific about that. It was something about his character. He was a very gracious person. Probably you've met somebody in your life that you would term to be gracious. They just have this very friendly demeanor. They just seem so kind. They, they, they just draw people to them the way they speak. Uh, their mannerisms, so gracious. It's disappointing when we find out that somebody says, you don't know them very well. They're not like that at home. <laughs> But sometimes people are just like that. They're like that at home. They're like that at work. They're like that in public. They, they're just like that. That's not just a front they're putting on. Stephen was a gracious man. That's kind of what's implied when it's talking about how his face was just like an angelic face. It says that a couple of times. Yet, being what we would say somewhat of a, 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 a mild manner kind of a person, at the same time, this is the guy that whenever it came time to speak the truth, he spoke it with boldness. He did not back down from addressing the Jews and saying, and you're the ones that are guilty. So he was mild when he needed to be mild. He was bold when he needed to be bold. And this is, this is kind of a, a description of the whole character and nature of Stephen. And, and he, was, he was offending People that were said to be members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now we don't, we don't know a lot of, of the synagogue of the freedmen by what information the Bible gives us. But historians give us a little bit more information about that. This, this synagogue, this members, the members of this synagogue were comprised of people that came from the cities of Cyrene and Alexandria, and also from the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. That probably doesn't mean a lot to you, except one of the major cities in Cilicia was Tarsus. So there, we begin to think, I have heard of Tarsus before. There is, and I say, there's a Saul of Tarsus. So many of the members of the synagogue of the freedmen were from Cilicia, maybe from Tarsus, maybe Saul, as he was known at that time, being a member of this, or maybe Saul knowing people who were members of the synagogue of Tarsus. So now Saul is being drawn into this plot somehow because at the end, whenever <clears throat> Stephen is stoned to death, there's a young man there that was consenting unto his death, and they came and laid their coats at his feet, and this young man, man was Saul. Because Saul, as we're building up to this, was not happy with what Christians were doing. He was not happy with the message that they were teaching. So these members of the synagogue of the freemen uh, somehow connected in some possible way to Saul. Was it possible he was actually part of this synagogue? We, he was certainly there when they stoned Stephen, so it's, it's speculation, but it's interesting. And then the power of his preaching, being able to stymie the opposition, because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and because of wisdom. Now let me just pause right there because more than just explaining Scripture and giving us historical context, there are things in there that ought to speak practical uh, things into our lives. And one of these is wisdom. I don't know anybody that wouldn't benefit 
from having wisdom. I know a lot of people that don't have wisdom. But we would all benefit from having wisdom. And we're not just talking about earthly wisdom. There's a difference between earthly wisdom and the wisdom that comes from above. Godly wisdom. Now let's just settle this right now. We all will benefit from godly wisdom. And his opponents could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So you see, both of these things designated as going on in Stephen's ministry. The anointing makes that kind of difference. And that's why we need anointed preachers, anointed teachers, anointed witnesses. You may not preach, you may not teach, but if you witness, you need to be anointed. You need to be full of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can work through you. Do you, do you realize what the Holy Spirit can do through you? He can take your efforts, even if they are not eloquent, and he can apply them to the people that they hear what the Holy Spirit wants them to hear. They experience what the Holy Spirit wants them to experience, even if you didn't intend to say it that way. This happens all the time when I preach. I know what I'm trying to say. But when somebody comes up to me and says, when you said that part about, and they go off into some description, I never said that at all. But what a blessing that was to them. <laughs> it's hard for me to take credit for that because I'm sitting there thinking, that's not at all what I meant. But it's what the Holy Spirit meant. I was used when I was anointed as I did what I was doing and the Holy Spirit took what I was saying and applied it to them and they heard what they needed to hear. This happens all the time with me. I just got uh, one of the uh, ladies in my church tried to call me on the phone. I was not able to take the phone call. Left a lengthy message. And... Fortunately, now my, my iPhone gives me a transcript of the voice messages so I can read it. And sometimes that's a lot easier because if, if it's a voice message, sometimes you miss it. You play it over and over. What do they say? But I can read the transcript. And it, lengthy. And, and she went on and on about this message that I preached and what it meant to her. And, and it was totally off. This, it, it had nothing to do with my message. Except it had something to do with what the Holy Spirit wanted to hear through what I was preaching. And it was a blessing to her. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You need it as witnesses. Because you don't just say, well, I, I really need to be skilled to be able to speak to somebody. No, you need to be willing. You need to be yielded. You need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And when you're trying to witness to somebody else, you, you, it, there's no telling what they might hear you say if the Holy Spirit translates that for them. So we need witnesses full of the Holy Spirit. We need people full of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that comes from God. The Bible promises us if any man lack wisdom, if any woman lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to everybody without criticizing them. And the biggest problem I see here is people getting people to see and admit that they lack wisdom. Because a fool thinks he's wise. And I see this as one of the biggest obstacles to overcome. Fools believing that they are really wise and really cool. And how do you get them to see how foolish they really are? But if you are embarrassed by your track record of making bad choices... Come on, people. This is confession time. Would you just be honest with me? How many of you have made bad choices in life? May I see your hands? Oh, how many of you have never made any bad choices? That makes it a whole lot easier. Okay. I think we've established that for the most part we've made bad choices. You know why we made bad choices? Because we didn't use wisdom. If you are sick and tired of those times in your life, when you've made bad choices. If you're sick and tired of acting and looking like a fool when you've tried your best and it just doesn't turn out right. If you're ready to turn up 
turn your messed up life around and get back on track, then it's time to admit worldly wisdom just doesn't get it. If you want wisdom that will guide you through life, wisdom that you can depend on, wisdom that will not embarrass you, ask God for wisdom. He gives it freely. He will not rebuke you for asking for wisdom. He stands ready to dispense wisdom. What kind of fool would not take advantage of that offer except the fool that thinks he's already wise? But you know, you look at your track record and you see the wrong things you've done and you say, Lord, I just wish that I could wipe that slate clean, wipe it from my life. I've made bad choices. I've made wrong choices. I'm still paying for bad choices that I've made. Well, you can't erase the past, but you can start today and say, I need God's wisdom. And I'm not talking about some altar experience where you come down and you pray and you get zapped and you get up and you'll walk away and say, well, I've got wisdom now. I'm talking about every day you call on God and say, God, I need your help. Help me to make the right choice. Help me to do the right thing. You know what haunts me? I know too much about myself. I look back over my life and I see things that I have done, things that I have said, and if I dwell on that too much, I get to hating me pretty bad. I think you, I, oh, I just, that character, that, that person that I, I see him in the, in the third person, I, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to make mistakes between here and the grave that I look back on when I'm closing in on life and saying, you know, the past 15 years, I blew it there and there. I don't want to do that anymore. How many of you don't want to blow it in life anymore? Come on, are you with me? I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do the dumb things anymore. I don't want to make the expensive state mistakes anymore. I don't want to cost my family for my stupidity anymore. I want God's wisdom. We need wisdom. And we need to pray and ask God for it every day. And we need to walk with him because it's a relationship thing. You can't live out a relationship with God and expect him to fill you with his wisdom. You have to walk in relationship with him. I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But if we at least walk in relationship with God, we can ask him and he will help us. So let's leave the past behind. Let's walk from this point forward. And let's be so cautious every day. Lord, help me to do the wise thing. Help me to do the right thing. Now the second thing I want to talk about is not only the wisdom, but I admire Stephen's skillful use of Scripture. We are Christians. The Bible is our handbook. It's our responsibility to become familiar with the Bible. We have Bible studies. We have Sunday school classes. You have, you have private devotions. It is your duty to become familiar with the Bible. Familiar enough that you can, you can incorporate scriptures into life. You, the Bible is a guide for life, but you have to do it properly. You, you can't misuse the word. You have to handle it properly. And that, I've talked about this as we got into this, this series on the book of Acts, is just because you can find something in the Bible doesn't mean it really is relevant to what you're going through or applicable. It, that's twisting the scriptures. So you've got a, a great responsibility to be familiar with the Bible, and you've got a great responsibility to properly apply the scripture. Stephen did a masterful work in applying scripture in his defense. But don't misuse scripture. Don't twist or misapply scripture to advance your own agenda. Now, I, I, I'm going to say something because I think it's something we're all, it's current events, it's something familiar with, and I don't intend to offend anybody, but I, you, you just got to call it like you see it, okay? And uh, our president, and I have spoken about presidents before, uh, was asked at one time what his favorite Bible scripture is. 
And he couldn't answer that. And the, why can't you answer it? He said, because it's a highly personal and private manner. Now, let me tell you something. Having a favorite Bible scripture is not a personal and private matter. It's something everybody either has one or they don't. And you don't hide behind something. And so they asked him another question. Well, which do you favor, the Old Testament or the New Testament? He said, I, 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 they're just equal. I kind of like them both. And uh, now, what was going on here? Whether you voted the man for the man or did not vote for the man is irrelevant to this sermon today. I'm just pointing out that it's pretty obvious when you don't have a clue what the Bible says. You don't have a favorite scripture if you don't understand the dynamics between the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You, Testament, you cannot even answer that. You're hiding behind something. It, it, the president's not alone. There's a lot of people hiding behind their ignorance of the scripture. And so if we could, we could just go through the uh, uh, crowd today and ask people, what's your favorite scripture? Would you be able to give one? And I can understand saying, well, I have many that are my favorite. Okay, that's fine. Give one. Give one of many. We need a familiarity with the scripture. We need to be able to handle the scripture skillfully. When your position is bolstered by scripture, you're on solid ground. When you learn to skillfully incorporate the strength and the authority of scripture into your presentation, your case will be powerful and effective. But if you're sloppy in handling scripture, if you don't know any scripture, if you don't understand scripture, you're missing out on a great tool for how to live your life scripture-based. Now, this brings us to the seventh chapter. Stephen's in trouble. He's been brought before this council. He's been accused of some pretty serious charges. Uh, disrespecting Moses, claiming Jesus is going to tear the temple down. This all kind of sounds like Jesus' trial, doesn't it? He spoke against the temple, said he's going to tear this temple down when Jesus was speaking of his own body, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. So they didn't understand anything. Kind of the similar, it's the same people. And so they're coming at Stephen with some of the same tactics. And, you know, we heard him disrespecting our, our leader Moses. We heard him disrespecting the temple, and they're really trying to bring these charges against him like they did against Jesus. So Stephen goes into this long defense. And it's interesting that Luke chose to devote so much time to it, and there's a legitimate reason. This speech that Stephen gives is kind of a high, kind of a hinge point in the book of Acts. It's that point where now the church turns towards this, this Christianity and turns away from its links and ties to Judaism. This is a turning point. And it's very important that this whole speech is included because up to this point, you've had a bunch of Jews that got filled with the Holy Spirit and they were still attending synagogues and they were still praying at the temple. They were not getting along with the uh, Judaism. And, and uh, the whole thing was, uh, there was a lot of tension going on. So at this point, you begin to see those who are, who are stuck in their Judaism separated out from those who are willing to, to find their faith in Jesus Christ and move away from their strict ties to Judaism. All at this point, this, this, this change is happening. And Stephen powerfully and clearly declares why some of this separation is biblically, scripturally legitimate. This new spiritual movement that, is, that people are experiencing in Jerusalem and spreading out to other regions is starkly different from the old Judaism. And his sermon displays that. This is not Judaism 2.0. This is not Judaism on steroids. This is not the new improved Judaism. This is a new thing where the temple is marked as a thing of the past. And the church is the replacement. That's why we don't have temples like the Jews had it. Because that was another form and style of worship. God wasn't in favor of temples anyway. God was happy with a tabernacle. A portable tabernacle. He went where they went. 
But, you know, kings got grand ideas. David wanted a temple for God. Solomon wanted a temple for God. And they built this temple. And the temple became the object of adoration and worship and not God. But they were married to their temple, but they were far from God. And this new religion is not going to get hung up on a temple. So we'll watch as his speech separates those things out from where Christianity is going. So what looks in his sermon to be this meaningless, aimless rambling suddenly takes shape when we divide this up. First of all, in, and you, you, I would challenge you to go home and read this with this outline in mind. Stephen makes the case scripturally that the activity of God is not limited geographically to Israel. He gives examples of God. He spoke to Abraham. Well, Abraham was a, a heathen in a heathen land, and God spoke to him. So, Jews, you can't just say God only speaks and acts within the Jewish community. He started way outside before there was any Jewish community. And then he gives another example. He says uh, he blessed Joseph. Where was Joseph? He wasn't even in what we would call the promised land. He was down in Egypt because God's not restricted to geography. And the Jews thought he was. And then he gives another example. He spoke to Moses on Sinai. He performed wonders and miracles in Egypt on behalf of the Hebrew people. So in all of this story that he's telling, he's saying God works outside of your geographical boundaries. He works outside of your limitations and your restrictions. God is everywhere. God can do anything he wants, any place he wants. That didn't settle well with the Jews. They thought they had ownership on God. Exclusivity. And then Stephen moves next to the theme scripturally based the worship of God is not restricted to the Jewish temple this was really going to irk them they didn't like this at all and again he goes to scripture and he cites his proof Moses stood in the powerful presence of God on the backside of the desert in Midian he again experienced the overwhelming presence of God on Mount Sinai the tabernacle was a mobile structure that no matter where it was located in this desert, in this wilderness, God was always there. God was always present. And then Stephen has the audacity, the courage, the temerity to bring out the fact that the Jews own Scripture. He says, your Scripture declares God does not dwell in houses built by human hands. By this statement, Stephen has just devalued the temple. Now, the temple in those days was Herod's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt and remodeled by Herod. And so it was a new temple with a new remodel, but it was their temple, and they were so proud of it. And in this sermon, Stephen basically says, for this beauty, you remember the Jews came to Jesus to show him the building of the temple and they wanted him to brag on it. They came to him to show him the building of the temple. I don't know, it was, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of architecture. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when they came and said, brag on our temple, he said, every one of these stones, not a one of them will be left upon one another. And oh, it shocked them. It jarred them. They, they adored. They worshiped their temple. And Jesus said, it's going to all be smashed to pieces. So Stephen is basically saying to the Jews, your temple is is worthless it's brick and mortar it's nothing you don't need your temple I don't need your temple nobody needs your temple God wants you but he didn't care anything about your temple can you understand why they understand why they're getting upset with him then the third thing as we divide this message up is he goes through this section where he 
describes to his listeners, to the Jewish leadership, he said, you, you people, you have a very sad history of rejecting God's representatives over and over and again. You kill the prophets, you stone the prophets, you reject the message. Joseph, by the examples he gave, was rejected by his brother. Joseph was the one in tune with God, he got rejected. That's your history. Moses, the man sent by God to deliver the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage. You, you turned on him, you chased him out. Your deliverer came and you rejected him and he had to run away. He was rejected again as the leader of God's people whenever he went into the mountain and said, I'm going to go up and I'm going to get a word from God. I'll be right back. In his absence, they took all their jewelry, threw it into the fire. They fashioned a golden calf. They stripped off all their clothes and danced around it. And when Moses came back and saw that mess, he realized they had rejected him. They did not believe in him as their leader. He was God's man for the hour and they were not following and then, after he had given these examples of their rejecting God's leadership, that's when he comes to the end. And it seems like out of nowhere, he just, just attacks these people. But you see how his sermon has led up to this. Now he's ready to give his closing remarks. He says, you stiff-necked people. This, this is the gracious man. This, this is the man with calm demeanor that everybody loves. But you give him a, a, a crowd. You give him a people that need the message. And you put the message in his hands. And he's going to stand and he's going to deliver it. And he's not going to pull any punches. So gracious Stephen with the, voice of an, with the face of an angel has the voice of thunder. And he says to them, you're stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised which means that they had not been devoted to God. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. They didn't want to hear this. Was there, here's the challenge, was there, was there ever a prophet? Your ancestors did not persecute. Show me one. They even, here's the, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. They not only killed Jesus, they killed those who prophesied he was coming. You, you guys have a bad record. And then to top it all off, they killed the prophets who prophesied of the righteous one. Then the righteous one came and you murdered him too. You who have received the law that was given through angels but you have not obeyed it oh. they were infuriated you know how angry they were you know how angry they were so angry they picked up the stones and they began to hurl now I've never seen a stoning in person the worst I've ever seen is depicted by Hollywood it's hideous enough just like that I can't imagine being pelted with stones until you literally are executed horrible horrible death and on the other end of the stone is angry people hucking them at you I mean it's not like it's a mountain falling on you is not like it's a freak of nature. It's angry people who are trying to kill you, stoning you to death. Unthinkable. He brings the accusations before the guilty people, and they respond. And he paid a price for it, for speaking the truth. Who else was going to speak the truth? This guy was just elected deacon. Now his first opportunity to get out there and minister, they kill him. They don't like his message. Let me make some application in closing this sermon out today. Let's go back to the activity of God does not have geographical locations. 
one of the most powerful lessons this can teach us is also one of the hardest for us to receive. Within the broad scope of Christianity, there's this ongoing tendency for the Christians to make their pilgrimage to some location somewhere because that's where they think the power of God is flowing. If there is a weeping statue somewhere in the world, there's going to be this procession of people that are going to make their way to this weeping statue because they believe the power of God is flowing right there. It might be in Europe, it might be in Mexico. Thousands will flock to it in hopes of receiving a special touch from God. I told you recently about the Bible that leaks oil. And they took this on tour in the United States. And wherever they'd stop, people could flock to this Bible as leaking oil. It's a specific location. Now, I know I'm, I'm turning just a little bit from what this literally is about. But it's, just, it's, it's about people thinking that God is restricted in geographic location. He's wherever the leaking Bible is. He's wherever the weeping statue is. He's wherever the, the, the priest with the, uh, with the oily hands is. And just so we don't leave the Pentecostals out of it, he's, he's wherever the hot spot for revival in the United States is. Let's go there. He's wherever the healing evangelist is in the crusade, in the, in, in the big uh, civic auditorium. He's there. And people will leave their own church to go where they think God is. I ask you, how many of you really truly believe God is here just like he's there? How many of you believe that he's omnipresent? How many of you believe you don't have to grow somewhere to find God? He's not limited by geographical location. Just because you hear that he's somewhere else in the United States doesn't mean he's not here. I'm not chasing after God geographically. I'm just chasing after God spiritually. And we will spend a whole bunch of money getting in our car and trying to chase after God and more energy and more time than we will pursuing God right here. The best we can do from all that running around is just go have an emotional experience. But if you have to travel to find him, you haven't found him. The next point that we can apply, we go back to the worship of God is not restricted to the Jewish temple. Now, we don't have the Jewish temple like the Jews. We have corresponding temples of our own making. Symbolic temples. We, we have places we consider more sacred because we believe God dwells there. And, and in a sense, we kind of watch ourselves when we're in God's house. There, there are certain things we're very careful about how we act and how we behave. It's God's house. And the unfortunate thing about it is when we get out of God's house, it's like we think God's not watching us anymore. Oh, this is God's house. Don't talk like that. Well, don't talk like it out there either. It's not just God's house. It's God's world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If it doesn't go here, it doesn't go out there. Number three, back to rejecting God's message and God's messengers. It was the core of Stephen's message. And it's the core of the real true message today. What have you done with Jesus? That's, that's really what Stephen came down to with the Jews. Now, I've got a question for you gentlemen. What have you done with Jesus? They rejected him. They crucified him. They despised him. But it's, that's the same powerful message today. What have we done with Jesus? It's the most important point of any preaching. Bring to everybody's attention that question. What are you doing with Jesus? It's a question that demands an answer. Because when you stand before God, that's basically going to be the main issue. When God looks at us, he's going to basically say, What did you do with my son? Did you have time for him? Did you honor him? Did you obey him? Did you serve him? Did you submit to him? That's the question we will answer standing before God. What'd you do with Jesus? 
Jesus came to give his, give his life a ransom for many, salvation for all. And those who reject Jesus are going to be rejected by God. And Jesus doesn't make it cheap or convenient or easy to follow him. He says, if you're going to follow me, all I want is everything. Nothing else will do. Tells the rich man, sell what you have, take up your cross and follow me. It's very simple. I just, I want to be number one in your life. Don't think you can have a proper, effective relationship with me if I'm number two, number three, number four, number five. If I'm just one of the things you do in life, but I'm subordinate to four or five other things, that's not what this is about. Jesus Christ has to be number one in your life. It's all about following Jesus. And Jesus said, none of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his own possessions. In other words, make them secondary. Not primary, but secondary to following and serving Jesus. It's called surrender. And we have a choice to make. Following him is more than just acknowledge acknowledging that he exists or that he walked the earth or that he was the son of God. Following him means surrendering and coming under his lordship. So the question is, what have you done with Jesus? Bow your heads.